Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome back to our podcast series on world history. In this podcast is an important marking in the sense that from this point forward in my world history podcast, as I introduce the next one, I will be saying two numbers that this will either be the first or second or third in this second series on world history. However, for those of you that have been listening to these podcasts from the very first one, I'm going to continue that number as well, so that again, there's continuity on your for, uh, on your behalf as well. So this podcast is the first one in the second half in world history, or put together would be the 38th one, since going back to the very first one where I introduced the series on world history. In our 37th podcast, we looked at our final one in the first half of World Series. We did a brief, very brief review of the impact of the modern day philosophers of this time period in the post-Renaissance world, as well as the impact of the scientists like Newton, Locke, or, excuse me, Isaac Newton, Galileo, Copernicus, and others, as well as the philosophers, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. In this podcast now, we're going to be looking at how the general public was living in the Western world, specifically on the Eurasian continent. By Again, I'm saying the commoners, I'm talking about uh, certainly the me's, maybe the you's as well, but John and Jane public, John and Jane Doe, the average individual trying to make ends meet, living uh, as, as best as possible, raising a family, etc. That's what we're going to take a look at here. And the first thing is we look at society and, and economy in the 16 and 1700s. The first thing that we're going to be reviewing is the what the individuals themselves were living on, specifically the land. In the Western world, at this time, again, in the 16 to 1700s, more than three quarter of the people lived in the countryside. Only roughly 25% lived in urban areas or in major cities or in the very outskirts. However, the quality of life and the presence of technology varied significantly depending upon your location. As a rule of thumb, when one traveled from west to east on the Eurasian continent, in other words, from far western Europe, and the Western countries that border the North Sea, the English Channel, and the Atlantic Ocean, the further one went east within the European continent, it seemed as though one was traveling back in time until you pass the Ural Mountains and then getting into Asia, where depending upon the country would impact what type of technology that you would be exposed to. But within the European continent, from Western to Eastern European, a trend started developing, again, that with the when going from west to east, technology was less available to the point, again, it seemed as though one was traveling back in time. This was the case in the 16 and 1700s. While certainly 
Eastern Europe has made significant strides in improving their quality of life, incorporating technology into the world. There was a major setback because of the impact of forced communism when many, but not all, of the Eastern European countries were forced to live as buffer states to the former Soviet Union, which existed from 1917 through to 1991 with the end of the Soviet era. However, decades had passed where the technology by and large was limited to people of Eastern Europe. I myself in my travels, and again, for those of you just starting in the series here of my podcast, if you're new to uh, the series on world history, I've traveled over on four continents to over 20 countries most of which were in Western and Eastern Europe. And I, again, I experienced it myself that when I traveled to the far Western countries at the time that I was traveling, every hotel room was equipped with a computer, had internet access, admittedly not fast in those days, but there was nothing to compare it to. So hearing that old dial-up sound was the norm. And that was readily available in every hotel room, just to use that as an example computers and access to the internet. However, as I traveled further and further east, well into Russia, what I found is that not only were the computers absent in the hotel rooms, in some hotels that I stayed in entirely, there was not one available computer for the guests to use, and internet access was extremely limited only to the dying form of business in the other parts of the world called the internet cafe, because of their uh, very limited bandwidth and other technology that they had access to. So just a brief overview there of the land itself and again the lack of equal access to technology from west to east. Question obviously starts to crop up. Why is this? Why was there more money in the western countries versus the eastern countries? As explained in this uh, podcast on the first half of world history, because of the access to the overseas colonies, first discovered by Columbus in 1492 and then eventually exploited by the Western European countries, because of their ability to colonize foreign lands, subject native, and then in some cases, African populations to slavery, the European countries in the far West were making money hand over fist compared to their Eastern counterparts who did not have the wherewithal to be able to colonize the lands in North and South America. So again, just an explanation for that. So we're by looking at the land, we can kind of consider that a satellite overview. Now let's start honing in. Let's start zooming in now on the individual human households within Western and Eastern Europe. Essentially, there were three before the Industrial Revolution hits. There were three lines or forms of work and employment. The first, the most common, of course, were the farms. Growing of raw materials, some for consumption, some to be built uh, into uh, finished products. You had artisan workshops that took raw materials to make those into finished products. And then you had the merchant shops that took the finished products to sell them to the public. So you had, again, those three lines of work. Number one was your farms, Two was your artisan workshops, and three was your merchant work or merchant shops, or essentially stores. In terms of the household, in Western Europe, they predominantly consisted of the nuclear family. By the nuclear family, I'm just simply referring to mom and dad and the immediate kids. That's it. 
no extended family in either direction, either from mom's side or dad's side. Once the children who lived with the parents until generally their early 20s, the boys would engage in a trade as early as possible. Then they would marry, and at that point, they would leave the house. However, it was not uncommon in this time for marriage to often take place with a pregnant bride. As one traveled from West Western Europe to Eastern Europe, you'd find that the marriages often took place earlier, and it was not uncommon for three generations of households to live within one structure for purposes of survivability, because almost everyone lived with a family member. Living on one's own is not something that by and large becomes common until well into the 20th century. On the surface, we could say yes, and clearly that hasn't changed since then, but actually it has. When severe economic recession, or if it's long enough into a depression, hits a region, it is not unheard of for individuals to abandon their, their bachelor pads, more or less, and move back in with either with family if mom and dad are still alive, or just one parent, or in some cases with brothers or sisters if they have them. Yes, then as we head into the post-World War II era, single households become more common. However, that has also reversed itself after the economic uh, downturn in 2008, when more and more people now were beginning to start to cohabitate, whether again, whether it be with friends, family members, et cetera. The reason being is three single people trying to make ends meet with the economic devastation that hit the real estate market and the trickle down negative effects from that. Why have three individuals paying three separate gas bills, three separate electric bills, et cetera, when we can combine that into one household where your access fees are now only charged to one household versus three. So for survivability, we humans certainly know how to adapt. In terms of agricultural reform, something also could be seen that was slightly changing the landscape now in Western and Eastern Europe. The first off is that drain, draining lands and building dikes was becoming more common. Human society was no longer considering itself or resigning oneself that, well, what Mother Nature does is just simply what she does and we can't control it. We're figuring out now better approaches, I should say, to things like irrigation and draining lands from swampy areas and then basically damming up the water into particular areas with dikes. We can see this throughout the United States, even in Western and Eastern Europe today, when, for example, if you look at the parking lots of large structures like shopping malls, you notice that the parking lots by and large are not flat. They're always sloped towards one or more drains. And if you were to able if you were able to follow those drain pipes, you would see that they go to an access area where they would have holding or retention ponds in order to again allow the water to evaporate and dissipate or soak into the land, soak into the earth simultaneously. Population growth, therefore, could skyrocket because land that was once under a lot of water that is now available for, for agriculture often found was very rich in nutrients. So with fewer wars and epidemics taking place throughout the 16 and 1700s, along with improved and expanded food production, population growth simply skyrocketed. An increased population also, however, 
resulted in a larger workforce. This is the beginning of Europe beginning to truly put itself on the world map to nations and other continents around the world. So just a brief review then, what we looked at here in this opening section or opening podcast, I should say, on the second half of world history, we did a brief overview of the land, zooming into the family households and economy, and then finally getting looking at the households themselves in Western versus Eastern Europe. Now, the elephant in the room clearly is, of course, the fact or the impact of the Industrial Revolution that starts in the 1780s. Specifically, as much as mythically many people believe that the Industrial Revolution was an American creation, it wasn't. America, however, will run gangbusters with the technologies that are invented in England. It's not to take away from American entrepreneurs at all. But in the fact that, for example, the Bessemer um, uh, steam process, the actual idea of the automobile, the railroad, those are inventions again in Europe. But because of the high population, the much smaller availability of land, those technologies almost have no bounds here within the United States, many of which we'll be discussing in this and future podcasts. But simply put, the Industrial Revolution to flesh that out from its inception, industrial, of course, meaning machinery. When I say the word revolution, revolution is not reform. When you hear the word revolution in your mind, if the term is correctly used, what you should be thinking of is replacement, not reform. Reform is a change within a given system. When our tax code is reformed, we're still paying taxes, folks. We're still paying it to Uncle Sam, our federal, our state government, our local government, etc. Reform is a change within. Revolution, again, when correctly used, means replacement. So in the Industrial Revolution, what's being replaced? Well, the word before the revolution, industry. Industry and mechanical means of producing products and improving the lives of the human population is replacing animal power and human power in terms of our hands. Simply put, the Industrial Revolution is the achievement of sustained economic growth through machinery. On the surface, if I were to have given you a pop quiz where I asked you to match that term Industrial Revolution with that phrase, that definition, chances are the average person would have been able to get that question right. However, I want to take the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in the 1780s, and I want to fast forward that to the 21st century by looking at just a couple of products and a couple of regions of, of the world to be able to, if nothing more in this podcast, drive home the point of how important this particular revolution was to humanity worldwide. This is the first of many different sources that I'll be reading from going on through now in the second half of world history, partly because this is getting closer and closer to my areas of expertise. So therefore, even though I can expound on some of these things off the top of my head, I feel it's important to my listeners to hear th these 
words coming from another author, coming from another expert. So every time I read something, I'll also give you the title of the book or the journal article, whatever it is that I'm reading, the author. And of course, if you have any questions or have trouble finding these sources, never hesitate to contact me to say, hey, that uh, 38th podcast about the Industrial Revolution, can you send me that author and and, uh, book title again? So in this case, what I'm going to be reading from is a book called As the Future Catches You by Juan Enriquez. And in the book on page 19 is where I'll be starting. And if you are driving, it's heavy traffic, I advise you to pull over. Listen to this and take this in. In, On page 19, he starts. In 1750, someone working in the world's richest country was about five times wealthier than someone working in the poorest one. As long as economic development could only depend upon agriculture, it was hard for one's region's work to be far more valuable than that of its neighbor. Perhaps a more disciplined population, one that got up to milk the cows earlier and had better land and better leaders, yes, perhaps could accumulate accumulate a little more wealth, but not a great deal more. Through the 18th century, Europe's yearly economic growth was about 0.07% per year. All of this changed with the Industrial Revolution. And he puts that sentence, all of this changed with the Industrial Revolution, in huge point-sized print to emphasize how important it was. Suddenly, one person's labor could be multiplied a hundred or a thousandfold because it was a machine doing most of the work, not human hands. Countries that developed machines became far richer. A civilization with a great history, culture, and pedigree but that did not find a way to multiply its citizens' output, became far poorer. In 1840, just as the Industrial Revolution was beginning to show its head, two great states, China and India, accounted for 40% of world trade. Remember that. 1840, two great states, China and India, accounting for 40% of world trade. These two countries continued producing the best and most luxurious handmade goods in the world, silks, jewels, jade. Meanwhile, Europe and the United States began producing far more products, and each product was getting cheaper. When Henry Ford built his first Model T in 1908, he could only sell it for no less than $900. There were cars that were more luxurious, better made, and even cheaper. But Ford industrialized and standardized mass production. The customer can have any color he wants, he used to say, so long as it's black. Four years after starting production, a Model T cost $690, one quarter less than when it was launched just four years earlier. Two years later, just before World War I, the car now sold for $490. And Ford was selling more than 1 million cars per year. By 1925, Model T's had dropped down to $290. But neither India nor China was industrializing. Today, the average Hindi lives in extreme poverty. Although surrounded by beautiful palaces, 
and other structures, China and India together publish 3.9% of the world's science papers. And China and India together no longer represent 40% of world trade. The numbers are now into the low single digits. Are they coming around, especially China? Absolutely. But look at the massive lag time. That is why even in 1998, the average South Asian income per person was lower than that of sub-Saharan Africa, $430 per year versus 510 Perhaps one can understand why the Chinese were somewhat arrogant and blind to change. Of the 14 dynasties, 10 lasted longer than the entire history of the United States. They developed paper, the compass, fine porcelain, gunpowder, movable types, and guns. Yet they frittered away every technological advantage because they did not trust their own people and they feared new ways of doing things. China's first emperor set the tone by burning all books, all to erase what had come before. So again, that was from the book As the Future Catches You by Juan Enriquez. That's spelling E-N-R-I-Q-E-Z. And I pulled that from pages 19 to 21. But it really does, in just a couple of pages and four minutes of reading, literally summarizes better than what I could put in a half-hour podcast. All of this development now in the industrialized world left the human consumer with what will begin to be arguably an insatiable appetite for new and different goods, thereby increasing consumption. Therefore, average everyday items were now more in demand in the industrialized countries. But even with those items in demand, the entrepreneurial type mind looked for ways to improve these items and the production assembly. Yes, you're inventors. But the problem, ladies and gentlemen, is you can produce products far faster than you can produce human beings. What I'm getting at is you can produce far more of your inventory, but if you can't increase the headcount of the population much faster, you're going to have an glut of inventory that you can't move. So now the fact that we can, we humans can start producing more products and producing them faster, we now begin to look at the human customer differently than we did before. And the individual that pioneers this particular field of business that will eventually be called marketing was Hosea Wedgwood, who lived from 1730 to 1795. Wedgwood essentially created the showroom and the traveling salespeople. He improved and changed products continually, trying to convince the customer that what you're holding in your hands or is in your cabinets, that's the old style. That was the old way. People wanted the new version. On the same token, as individuals walk through a particular store, a merchant's shop or what have you, is there a way that perhaps they could be manipulated to possibly into buying more? Well, this particular analysis comes from a book called The Social Animal by David Brooks, B-R-O-O-K-S. And on pages 171 to 172, he explains pretty clearly just how diligent these minds were 
to persuade the you and I in society when we're walking through the average shopping mall or any kind of a big box store. But don't think it started with Wedgwood. As Brooks states, starting in chapter 11, sometimes back in, sometime back in the Pharaoh's day, a shopkeeper discovered that he could manipulate the unconscious thought of his customers simply by manipulating the environment in his store. Merchandisers have been following his lead ever since. For example, shoppers in grocery stores usually confront the fruit and vegetables sections first. Grocers know that shoppers who buy the healthy stuff first will feel so uplifted that they will buy the more junk food later on in their trip. Yes, laughing at yourself? Don't worry, so am I. He goes on to say, or write, grocers know that the smell of baked goods stimulates shopping. So many bake their own bread and frozen dough from frozen dough on the premises each morning and pump the smell of that bread into the store throughout the day. They also know that music sells goods. Researchers in Britain found that when French music was pumped into a store, sales of French wines actually skyrocketed. The same with German music to German wines. As the at the shopping mall, low-volume stores are generally near the exits. People haven't made the transition from the outside world to the inner shopping world yet, so they barely notice those first few establishments. In department stores, the woman's shoe section is generally next, right next to the woman's cosmetics section. While the clerk is going back to find the right shoe size, bored customers are likely wanting to wander over and find some makeup that they might want to try later. And don't forget the cologne or perfume. Consumers frequently believe products placed on the right side of a display are of higher quality than those on the left. Timothy Wilson and Richard Nis Nisbet put four identical pairs of pantyhose on a table and asked consumers to rate them. The farther to the right a pair was on the table, the higher the rating the average woman gave it. The right word most pair was rated highest by 40% of the customers, the next one by 31%, the next by 17%. And lastly, the one on the far left received 12%. All of the consumers, but one, ironically enough, a psychology student, denied that location made any difference in their selection, and none noticed that the products were exactly the same. At restaurants, people eat more depending upon how many people they are dining with. People eating alone eat least. People eating with one other person, on average, eat 35% more than they do at home. People dining in a party of four eat 75% more, and people dining with seven or more eat more than 96% more than they would have if they were eating alone. So again, that coming from David Brooks, The Social Animal. Along that line, we also realize, though, with no surprise, that when we're at, for example, the grocery store, the two most commonly bought items is from your dairy section, milk, and then your bakery section, bread. How convenient as well for the, for the vendor, not for the consumer, that those two items will never be located right when one walks in the store, right near the cash register. The bread and bakery section will often be to the far right, while the dairy section will often be not only in the back, but usually on the opposite side. 
Because chances are, of course, that the more one walks in from the beginning of the store to the cash register, the more products they pass, the more likely they are to buy more products. We also see that back in the shopping mall as well. When individuals walking from the hard, harsh floor and bright floor with, with dizzying patterns on the floor, enjoy the comfort and the change of music when you walk into individual stores in a shopping mall. Is it any surprise that there are no clocks in the average casino in Las Vegas or Atlantic City? Also, no surprise that the carpets have an extremely busy pattern to them. Why? Because of the same busy pattern of the floors of the shopping malls. You want to keep the eyes up, not looking down. So the, all these types of things, plus countless more and others that we'll be talking about in future podcasts, all aim to try to get these products made now with the newest technology into the hands of the John and Jane Doe of society. Ownership and accessibility of a country's level and quality of goods became the flagship of prosperity. So moving forward then, in our industrialized world, who leads the way at this particular time in the Industrial Revolution? And when we come back, we're going to look at that, and we're also going to look at the impact of arguably the single greatest invention in the entire Industrial Revolution era an era, mind you, that is still going on to this day. What is that single greatest invention? Well, I haven't got that far in the history book. So tune in for next week's podcast in world history, and we'll begin to explore that and then the other impacts of products that are now beginning to turn the human world practically upside down. Thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. If you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.